Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato rahato samma sambuddhassa Good afternoon, friends. <clears throat> We've come to the last full day of the retreat, hence the last talk of this retreat. And I'm not really sure if I want to give this talk. <laughs> the reason being that all the other monks have given you these, all the, us these wonderful gifts of Dhamma over the past week with all the different knowledge and perspectives and so on. And then yesterday, Bhante Sila, he, he closed everything so nicely, I felt. He, he kind of gave a nice wrap-up, leading us all the way to right liberation. And beyond that, what is there to talk about? And so if I give this talk now, I have to unwrap his wrapping up and rewrap it myself. And I don't know if I'm a good wrapper, so there's all these different questions I'm asking myself. So with that, may you all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Go ahead and turn off the mic now. <laughs> no, I, I have to give the talk. I'll get in trouble otherwise. <laughs> so anyway, being that it's the last talk of this retreat, it's fitting then that we talk in detail about the last factor of the Bojangas, and that is equanimity, which is translated as, I'm sorry, the Pali is upekka, which Bhante Sila went into the um, etymology a bit yesterday, and we'll go into further detail later. And now I'd like to explore Upekka in a few different ways, going through the various instances in which we find Upekka in various different stratum of the Buddha's teachings, <clears throat> specifically so that we can get an, a broad idea of what Upekka is pointing towards, what it's referring to, in order that we can understand what exactly it means as in a factor of awakening, a factor of enlightenment. Because this is a very important thing. Equanimity, in, if we look at the Bojangas in a linear fashion, is the, is the culmination, is the last factor of the Bojangas. It's what all the other Bojangas lead to before those Bojangas work together to lead to Nibbana. And so in that regard, it's something that's very developed in the practice. It's something that arises when one has developed their practice very strongly. And so if we begin with more mm, approachable instances of equanimity, we can extrapolate then to see exactly what this very subtle form of equanimity is exactly pointing to. And the first distinction I'd like to bring up is um, something that comes up in the Salayatana Vibhanga Sutta, the 137th Sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya. 
And here, the Buddha separates equanimity into two categories. The first category being equanimity that's based on the household life, based on sensual pleasures. And the other as equanimity that's based on renunciation. And if we look at the difference between these two, we'll get a sense of what we're pointing towards when we're talking about equanimity. So the equanimity that's based on the household life (coughs) is specifically referring to the equanimity that arises when there is a specific sense experience, i.e. that we see a form or we hear a sound or so on. And that specific um, sense experience gives rise to this equanimous feeling. But this is called the equanimity based on the household life because it's still wrapped up in this idea of clinging and craving, this idea of liking and disliking. It's basically perhaps better translated in this context as indifference. So in our world of sense experience, there are things that we take as pleasurable, there are things that we take as painful, and then the vast majority of things we find to be them to be neutral. We're already indifferent to them. They're rather boring. They don't interest us. And the feelings that arise in dependence on a neutral object like that are what's called the equanimity based on the household life. The issue here being, however, that <clears throat> there's no wisdom behind this equanimity. It's still stuck in this cycle of personal preferences and personal bias. And in that regard, it's not leading us towards liberation, not leading us towards peace and contentment. On the other hand, the equanimity based on renunciation, in a way of speaking, sees past the sense experience. When we have equanimity arise dependent on renunciation, we have an equanimous feeling towards this sense object, not because of our own personal preferences, but because we've seen the object with wisdom. We see that whatever object it is, whether it be pleasant, painful, or a neutral kind of object, we see that it's impermanent. We see that it's unsatisfactory, that it's not going to provide us lasting satisfaction, and hence that it's not worth clinging to. And so when we have equanimity that's based on renunciation, we have an equanimity that's always in play, whatever the nature of the object may be. There's an equanimity that's seen through wisdom. We know not to get involved in liking and disliking because it's only going to lead us to more dukkha. We don't get involved in clinging to these things because we've seen them with wisdom that if we cling to these things, it's only going to prolong and produce more dukkha within ourselves. And another categorization that's given with these is the Buddha says that the renunciation based on the household life does not transcend the form, the sense experience. It's stuck on it. Whereas the equanimity based on renunciation transcends the sense experience itself. And what this means is, when we have this equanimity based on the household life, we have, again, these ideas of this specific object gives me equanimity, i.e. that I don't care about it, that it's not interesting to me, that I'm indifferent towards it. Whereas this equanimity based on renunciation broadens the scope away from a specific object towards a general stratum, i.e. that instead of saying, I am indifferent towards, let's say, vanilla ice cream, 
um, it turns into I am equanimous with regards to all ice cream or specifically all tastes because I know that all tastes are impermanent. So you can see that when we have equanimity that's backed by this intention of renunciation, we've, we've broadened the scope and we're seeing within not the specific object itself, but within the entire structure of the sense experience therein. And it's this second kind of equanimity that we're really striving to develop in our practice because anyone can develop the first kind. In fact, everyone has developed it. They have their likes and dislikes and um, lack thereof of either of those preferences. But this, this equanimity, this second type, is one that only comes through wisdom, that comes through understanding the three marks of existence, understanding the four noble truths, and leads us to peaceful dwelling and contentment. One could say that the first kind of equanimity is trapped in the world. It's trapped in the world of variety. Whereas the second one is transcending the world. It's all that more fitting then that one of the ways the Dhamma is described as loka uttara, meaning above the world or beyond the world, leading to beyond the world, unworldly. And having said this, I'd like to introduce into our discussion a verse from the Mahamangala Sutta, which is a very famous sutta in the Sutta Nipata that's often chanted, um, <clears throat> you know, at house, at um, special occasions when people come and bring food to the monks or the monks go to their house or things like that. And it's a very interesting sutta in and of itself. You can also find it in the Vandana book because it's shifting this perspective of blessings. People think of blessings, they think that I need someone to bless me, or if I do this, or if I you know, wear a protective charm or something, I will be blessed. If I ask the priest, I will be blessed. But this sutta kind of turns out on its head, because the Buddha in this entire sutta says that one is not blessed by charms or recitals or anything like that, but blessings come from one's own actions. One blesses oneself by conducting themselves in a way that accords with the Dhamma. And that's a way that leads to contentment, happiness, and peace. But anyway, the, the, fin <clears throat> the final um, verse of this sutta points to something within this idea of being stuck in the world. <clears throat> the verse goes... Puttasa loka dhammehi chittang yasa nakampati asokang virajang kemang etang mangalamuttamang. And the translation of that is a mind that's unshaken when touched by worldly states, sorrowless, stainless, and secure, this is the blessing supreme. So we see four factors here that are said to be the supreme blessing. The first is a mind unshaken when untouched by worldly states. The Pali for worldly states here is loka dhamma. Literally, you could call that worldly condition or worldly things, um, any kind of translation like that. And that's the one I'd like to focus on. But there's also these um, factors of asoka, meaning sorrowless, some of the men are probably staying in Ahsoka House. So you're staying in the house free of sorrows. And if you don't like Ahsoka House, you can call it Soka House, the house of sorrows. 
<laughs> I hope none of you vandalize that sign out of anger or anything like that, yeah? <clears throat> and then we have virajang, which means stainless. This verse is specifically referring to an enlightened being, one who is free of these mental stains, namely greed, hatred, and delusion. And although we might not be there, these are things that we aspire towards. That's why all these descriptions of an enlightened being are so beneficial, because they give us a benchmark with which to base our own behavior, our own conduct on. And finally, there's kema, secure. A mind free of defilement is said to be secure, because there's no more dukkha that can arise, and so it's secured from that. It's perfectly free from that kind of bondage. But anyway, I want to talk about these loka dhammas and how they relate to equanimity. In one sutta, these loka dhammas are described as the atta loka dhammas. That's the eight worldly things, or um, sometimes translated in this specific context as the eight worldly vicissitudes, or the eight worldly conditions. And these things are named as such because the Buddha says that the world revolves around these things, and these things revolve around the world. They're intimately tied with the world. If we look into any of our motivations, we'll generally find that they fall into one of these eight categories. And there's four pairs total. <clears throat> there's first gain and loss. There's um, fame and disrepute praise and blame, and pleasure and pain. If we look into our motivations, especially our unenlightened motivations or the motivations of others, we'll find that we generally hanker after the positive aspects of these pairs while at the same time doing our best, our best to avoid the negative sides of these pairs. And so you can see this revolving that happens. We, in the first place, chase after the positive aspect, and then that positive aspect will inevitably change and become otherwise, and then suddenly we're running away from the pain that's arisen, and there's this, this cycle. It's the cycle of samsara. It's all that more fitting then that one way one could translate samsara is running on, continuously running, running towards pleasure, running away from pain, all the while the vast majority of neutral experience is left unobserved, unidentified, uninvestigated. And so in this sutta also, the Buddha says that both the uninstructed worldly person, that's called the patujana, and the noble disciple, that's called the seka, meaning that one who is, has gained one of the fruits of enlightenment but is still training, namely stream-enterers, once-returners, and non-returners, the Buddha says that both these pairs of people experience all of these four pairs, these eight worldly dhammas. And he asks the monks, what do you think is the difference? What distinguishes here the worldly person and the noble learned disciple when they're touched and contacted with these things? And so for the worldly person who doesn't know the Dhamma, who hasn't seen, investigated the Dhamma and seen it with wisdom for him, him or herself, <clears throat> they're touched by the positive aspects of these pairs. They come to gain something material, 
They come to be praised for something. They come to be well-known and well-reputed, and they experience pleasure. And when they experience these things, there arises in them delight. They grab onto these things. They grab onto the pleasant feelings that arise from these things. And their minds become utterly obsessed with them, obsessed with pleasure, obsessed with gain, and so on and so forth. But inevitably, these things change and become otherwise. Gain becomes, what is gained must eventually be lost. Praise turns into blame. Even the Buddha was not free from being blamed. People in his day blamed him for different things, saying that he teaches these um, dangerous doctrines and so on and so forth out of their own misunderstandings. But nevertheless, even a fully enlightened being was not subject to only being praised by every single person. And then fame inevitably becomes disrepute at some point. One can't be in good reputation at all times with every single person. That's just completely impossible. And inevitably, our pleasures turn into pain, if only because the cessation of pleasure is called painful. There's this, again, this continuous cycle. And so when the worldly person loses these pleasant things, they become dejected and distraught. And they become full of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair, and so on and so forth. And so they're trapped in this cycle, those who do not see these things with wisdom as they are. They're trapped in this cycle of attraction and repulsion. But on the other hand, the noble and learned disciple, one who is practicing the Dhamma, <coughs> they come in contact with these um, positive aspects of the worldly Dhammas. But they see that these things are impermanent, that they're unsatisfactory, that they're subject to change, that they're not worth clinging to. And hence, they instead of having this attraction towards these things, they, there arise within them equanimity. Again, we, have, we see here equanimity that's arising because of wisdom. Equanimity that's arising because the noble learner disciple knows not to get emotionally involved in these things because it's going to only lead to their harm in the long term as the inevitable changes come to be. And with such a relationship to these things, when they inevitably cease, they were prepared for it. They already knew this was going to happen. Oftentimes it can be that when we don't contemplate impermanence often and deeply, impermanence takes us by surprise. You see this perhaps most clearly in the sudden death of someone close to us. People can get distraught and upset and sad over the loss of this person because they, they weren't reflecting properly. They didn't realize that death is inevitable that all things are impermanent. And so they were taken by surprise by this. They weren't mentally prepared for it. And that's one of the greatest benefits of constantly perceiving impermanence, that it prepares us for these things, so that when inevitably impermanence takes its course, when we lose the things we like, the things that we enjoy, we don't feel so distraught about it. We don't feel so dejected about it. <clears throat> and the noble disciple has taken this to an extreme so that he, does not get, he or she does not get dejected about anything because he, they've seen with such deep wisdom at the impermanence of all of these things. 
not only the worldly vicissitudes, vicissitudes, but also all conditioned phenomena in and of themselves. And so we see this theme arising here with regards to equanimity, namely that equanimity can arise for us when we change our perceptions of things, when we change perceptions from perceptions of permanence to perceptions of impermanence, or perceptions of pleasure to perceptions of danger, i.e. that we see the dangers in obsessing in gain, fame, pleasure, and so on. And this manipulation of um, perceptions, one could also call it yoniso manisikara, skillful or wise attention, in that the way that we attend to things is what determines how it is that we react to things. We can, re- we can pay attention and attend to things in such a way that gives rise to um, pleasure or a way that gives rise to pain or a way that gives rise to equanimity. And it's this giving rise to equanimity that a great deal of the Dhamma is focused upon, changing these perceptions of the world so that we remove our obsession with them, we remove our attraction, and we also, on the opposite end of the spectrum, remove our rejection and um, um, repulsion towards these things. You know, we can kind of think of it in terms of a sliding scale. On the one end, you have this extreme of repulsion, hatred, aversion. On this other end of the scale, you have the other extreme, craving, obsession, um, clinging, grasping, longing, and all these different things. And so these changings of perceptions can bring everything back into the center. So maybe you can see why we hold our hands like this when we do chanting, because we're being in the center when we do that. I completely made that up, by the way. I don't, I don't know if that's how it works. <laughs> it's a good description, though, right? I like it. <laughs> but anyway, this is what we're aiming towards, this centeredness. And the advantage of this centered point of view is that when we've abandoned attraction and repulsion, we can see things, we can see phenomena in our experience in an unbiased way, in a way that's not caught up in the emotional turmoils that we would typically be going through, this, these waves of samsara. You can think of samsara as a sine wave. It goes like this, you gain loss and pleasure and pain. Maybe you've seen sine waves on like an oscilloscope or something, if you remember your math classes at all, physics classes, what have you. <clears throat> Excuse me. This idea is further expanded upon in another sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya that's called the Mara Tajaniya Sutta, which is the 50th sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates this as the rebuke of Mara, the reproach of Mara. And in this sutta, a story is relayed of a previous Buddha, i.e. one before the Buddha Gautama, and this Buddha's name was Kakusanda, and he had this encounter with a Mara who was named Dusi. And so, you know, Maras in Buddhism are these kinds of entities that delight in heedlessness. They like um, 
driving people to perform in unskillful ways. This is a theme that's very pervasive in the Pali Canon, this idea of being overtaken or trapped or controlled by Mara. And you can kind of see the, um, the um, relevance of that simile. You know, I, when I think back to my, my own experience of, you know, if I've acted in a heedless way, Sometimes, you know, after you're done being heedless, you kind of snap out of it as where, and you're like, oh, what did I just do? What was I doing? It felt like someone was controlling you. I, I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to that idea, but I think the imagery is kind of interesting to explore. And whether you actually believe in a being called Amara or you think it's a psychological phenomenon, it's, it's not terribly important. It's all pointing to the same things. But anyway... In this story, the Buddha Kakusanda was going around with his monks. He was wandering, going for alms in villages and so on and so forth. And the Mara Dusi wanted to um, entrap the monks that were under the Buddha Kakusanda. He wanted to um, bring them to act heedlessly. And so he devised a plan where he um, persuaded the villagers in a certain town to act very hostilely towards the monks as they went to town, to scold them, abuse them, throw things at them, and so on. And the Maradusi hoped that this would give way to heedlessness in these monks because they'd become angry, they'd become um, hateful towards these people who were abusing them and treating them so improperly. And so <clears throat> the Buddha Kakusanda and the monks went into town and the Brahmins and the villagers did all these nasty things to them. And the Buddha saw this and instructed his monks thus. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he said to his monks, Abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a heart, with a mind imbued with metta, with a mind imbued with compassion, with a mind imbued with sympathetic joy, with a mind imbued with equanimity, to all as to oneself, abundant, that's vipulena, exalted, mahagata, um, immeasurable, apamana. Pamana means measuring something. So one of the fetters is called mana, which is conceit or literally measuring oneself. So you can kind of see the root there, which is kind of an interesting connection. And then also free from enmity or ill will, avairena abhyabhajena. These are the four factors that one should have in their practice of what's called these Brahma Viharas, literally the dwellings of Brahma or divine abodes as they might be called. And so as a response to this hostile activity, the Buddha Kakusanda extolled his monks to develop these things as a response to this. So that, again, instead of going to this extreme of anger and aversion, they would bring themselves back to the center with equanimous abiding, free from hatred and ill will. <clears throat> and we see equanimity also in these, this set of Brahmaviharas. And it will be useful for us if we briefly explore the role of equanimity in the Brahma Viharas as well. 
I don't want to get too far into detail on this because we have a metta retreat actually in about two or three weeks or so. So if you want to learn all about that, you can maybe try signing up for that if you want to or uh, look at it on YouTube. I think it'll all be posted there as well. So with regards to equanimity in the four Brahmaviharas, <clears throat> it has this role of balancing things. We can take again this idea of the sliding scale. So we typically practice the Brahmaviharas because we want to remove arisen anger and prevent anger from arising in the future. So we bring our minds away from this aversive mind state towards a neutral equanimous abiding towards all beings. And in one regard, that's the role of equanimity in these Brahmaviharas, that it's kind of the, the goal here. We want to have a balanced perspective with regards to all beings, free from the extreme of aversion, but also free from the extreme of clinging towards beings. You know, if we develop um, friendliness, um, compassion, and sympathetic joy towards certain beings, specifically ones that are already very close to us, this can sometimes, if we're not careful or practicing correctly, <clears throat> go over the mark, as it were, go from one extreme to another and lead us to attach and cling to that person. We have these ideas of extending friendliness toward this person, and kind of implicit in those ideas of friendliness is also the ideas of, I want them to stay the same. I don't want them to change. I would be upset if something happened to them. And it's equanimity that balances the Brahmaviharas and prevents that kind of oversliding towards this other extreme. <clears throat> because in a most ultimate sense, when we practice these Brahmaviharas, when we have this wish that all beings be well, happy, and peaceful, inevitably, they may not choose to be well, happy, and peaceful. They may not turn out that way. No matter how hard we wish, no matter how many mantras we recite, no matter how many hours of metta meditation we do, when it comes down to it, a being's happiness is their own, is their own duty, is their own responsibility. We can wish for goodwill toward other beings, and it's, we can hope that you know, they'll respond to that, that they'll find appreciation in that, and that they'll lighten their own minds through their own efforts. But the fundamentally important thing is that it has to be done through their own efforts. And so it's the improper way of practicing the Brahmaviharas if we wish goodwill towards all beings and then are also upset that those beings don't actually turn out to be well, happy, and peaceful. That's taking us too far. That's going from one extreme to the other. And so this equanimous abiding with regards to all beings is what balances this out. So we see this idea of, again, centeredness, and also this idea of balancing that's coming up when we talk about these Brahmaviharas. Anyway, back to the story of the Mara Dusi. So the monks cultivated the four Brahmaviharas and hence did not fall into heedlessness. <clears throat> so then, the, then Mara had a different idea. He said, what if instead of provoking the villagers to act hostilely towards the monks, what if I have them be extremely reverential, extre praise them extremely well, these monks? Go into town and you know, they all fall at their feet in you know, veneration and bow at them and so on. 
And he says, by doing this, I might cause them to become intoxicated with these things, intoxicated with these worldly dhammas, this praise, this good reputation. In many ways, in fact, this is a lot more dangerous than aversion and hatred, because hatred is pretty easy to see. You can, you can pretty easily see whether you're angry or not. But seeing whether you're, one is intoxicated by um, you know, their, the praise they're receiving, or, their good, or is intoxicated with their good qualities, or their reputation, that's a very much more subtle thing to see, especially because it feels very nice. Hatred is very visible because we don't generally like being hateful and angry, but we sure definitely do like being praised. We sure like having a good reputation. And so it's so easy. There's this very, very fine line between receiving these things and letting them go directly to our heads. And this is a, a very common, in fact, problem. You know, especially I think it's something that we as monks have to look out for a lot because you know, people do do these kinds of things to us. They go and bow to us at our feet and they you know, generally are very reverential and fawn over us in various different ways. Um, especially, you know, elder monks are like that. And so it's very dangerous for us that we don't fall into this intoxication saying, look at me, I am a great monk. Oh, the people love me. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, we don't want to do that. Because this Dhamma is for overcoming conceit, overcoming personality view. And if we get intoxicated with our own personality, with our own conceits, how are we going to overcome these things? It's not possible. It's only going to further this round of suffering when we get caught in these things. And it's all that more fitting then in that in one sutta, the Majjhima Nikaya, the Mahasaropama Sutta, the greater discourse on the simile of the heartwood, the Buddha compares <clears throat> the fame and praise that can arise for a monk to twigs on a tree when one is searching for the core wood, the heartwood. The Buddha says in that sutta that, you know, a monk comes in contact with fame and praise and becomes intoxicated with that. He says it's like as though one were searching heart, for heartwood, seeking heartwood, the root and the core of the tree, and they be, suddenly became contended with little piddly twigs and branches that fell off the side. And he says then to avoid this intoxication, to not let it hinder one's progress on the path. And so when the villagers were acting in this way, the Buddha changed his instructions for his disciples. He said instead to contemplate on the non-beauty of the body, contemplate on the repulsiveness of nutriment, to contemplate on disenchantment with the entire world, to contemplate on impermanence. These kinds of very powerful meditations bring us back down from the cloud nines that can come from praise and so on and so forth. You know, we have meditations, for example, non-beauty of the body, being looking at the body in such a way as um, seeing it in a variety of constituent parts, seeing it as a connection, collection of skin and bones and sinews and organs and all these not extremely pleasant things. And also we see again this idea of contemplating on impermanence by seeing that this praise and gain and so on is impermanent, that it's not connected with the goal of the holy life or the goal of our meditation practice. 
We can resolve to not obsess over these things. We can resolve to not let us, our minds become delighted in these things so that we can continue to abide equanimously. And so here again, once again, we see this idea of <clears throat> using perceptions, using a manipulation of perceptions to bring us back towards equanimity, bring us back towards centeredness. There's another verse that um, gives us this idea. This one is from the Ratana Sutta, which is also in the Sutta Nipata. And like the Mahamangala Sutta is very famous and well known. And this verse goes, Yatinda ki lo pataving sitosiya chatubhi vatebhi asampakampiyo tatupamang sapurisangvadami yo ariyasachani avetja pasati. Just as a pillar firmly grounded in the earth cannot be shaken by the four winds, so is the superior person, I say, who definitely sees the noble truths. So we see these two themes arising once again. First off of this idea of equanimity referring to unshakability. In fact, both the verses, puttasaloka damehi, and this one have this verb, kampati, in them, which means shakes or shaken. And each of them has nakampati, not shaken. A mind, un- a mind unshaken when touched by worldly states and a pillar unshaken when, um, when coming in contact with various kinds of winds and other such things. It's this idea of not getting caught up in the ups and downs of existence, but rather keeping an equanimous mind. And the rest of this verse says that this arises in its perfection when we see the noble truths, specifically this sec- the second and third noble truths, when we see that the origin of our suffering is this craving itself and that we should abandon that craving, craving and aversion, the two sides of the same coin. So when we, when we fully comprehended the noble truths, it means we've given up craving and aversion, and equanimity comes naturally as a matter of course. In speaking of this idea of elements, there's also a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. I forget the number, but it's a, one of the discourses to, given to Rahula, the Buddha's son. <clears throat> in this sutta, the Buddha extols Rahula to develop, to develop meditation that's like the four elements. We can take um, water as example. He says to Rahula to develop a meditation that's like water because whatever you throw in the water, the water isn't affected. The water doesn't get upset when you throw in pollution. It doesn't get happy when you clean it. It just keeps on watering or whatever you want to call it. Basically, it's unaffected. It doesn't get upset. It doesn't mind whatever's thrown into it. And the Buddha says that In the same way, if we develop a meditation that's like water, then whatever contacts we come in contact with, whether pleasant or painful, our minds will not be affected and we can dwell with equanimity, having abandoned this cycle of attraction and repulsion. And the the final verse I want to give is from the Sangyutta Nikaya. It's the first chapter, the Devata Sangyutta. It goes... Ye sang dhamma asamutta 
ಪರವಾದೇಶು ನೀಯರೆ ಥೇ ಸಂಬುದ್ಧ ಸಮ್ಮದನ್ಯ ಚರಂತಿ ವಿಸಮೇ ಸಮ this in fact is a verse that we chant every morning in our vandana book and it goes um one who clearly see i'm blanking out on the english translation here i'm sorry uh hold on sometimes it's easier to memorize the pali than the english what can i say uh right. those to whom the dhamma is clear are not led into other doctrines perfectly enlightened with perfect knowledge they walk evenly over the uneven so we see again this idea of that when one comprehends the noble truths there is evenness over the uneven unshakability that whatever external conditions there may be there is a mind that remains unaffected a mind that remains centered a mind that remains equanimous and so having gone into all these different verses we can finally come to a precise definition of equanimity this word upekka can be um um dissected into two parts upa ikati this has the idea of ikati means looking upa is a prefix that means many things but in this context can mean upon so looking upon it has this idea of looking upon something and not being emotionally affected by it not getting caught up in the um immediacy of the experience but rather keeping this detached bird's eye view of the experience so that one can see it as it is and this is really the most important role of equanimity that we'll explore in um a few minutes <clears throat> this idea that an equanimous mind is a mind that can conduct investigation in the best most efficient possible way you can think about that how are we going to see impermanence unsatisfactoriness and th- not self when we're attracted to things repulsed by things when when this is occurring we're caught up within the experience itself and we can't see the nature and the structure behind that very experience but when we abandon this tendency we can see things in a in an unbiased matter um one way you could describe it is in an objective matter although obviously it is still nevertheless subjective because all experience is subjective but this idea of not getting involved in the experience but just looking on and it also has these connotations of other synonyms in addition to equanimity there's ideas of things like unshakability imperturbability evenness steadiness and centeredness these are all different synonyms that are also kind of pointing to the same aspect of upekka equanimity <clears throat> and in addition we can make two broad or uh, broad observations about equanimity that are important to point to the first one is that equanimity is not something that just arises out of thin air at least not the kind of equanimity we are trying to <clears throat> develop 
In fact, one could say that perfect constant equanimity is a privilege. It's a privilege of one who has put in the effort, put in the work. It's the privilege of the arahant, the privilege of buddhas and such people like that. But for those who are not at that state, equanimity, or developing equanimity anyway, is an active process. We've seen in all these different examples and suttas that equanimity has to be something that is maintained, that is cultivated, that is developed towards perfection. And this is done summarily by Yonaso Manasikara. By attending to things in the proper way, we can abide um, observing them equanimously, equanimously and mindfully. Equanimity and mindfully are intimately tied to one another, in fact. The instructions given in the Satipatthana Sutta on the establishments of mindfulness say that one should practice mindfulness having abandoned covetousness and grief for the world, or in other words, attraction and repulsion. So we can see also that equanimity is kind of implicit in sati, that you can't have mindfulness without some degree of equanimity being present as well. Otherwise, one is caught up in the experience, which is the exact opposite of the detached observation that comes with mindfulness. And so we have to apply our efforts in order to develop and maintain equanimity so long as the roots of unwholesome things are still present within us. And by doing so, we can continue to develop wisdom. And in the most ultimate sense, equanimity is the result of wisdom. We saw that equanimity, the right kind anyway, arises when there is this observation of impermanence this observation of unsatisfactoriness, this intention of renunciation, the goal of non-clinging. When all these things are a driving force behind our equanimity, it is the equanimity that's based on renunciation, the equanimity that leads us forward on the path. And so wisdom and insight are what stabilize equanimity, what develop and uh, maintain equanimity. It's not this force of will or this clenching of the mind, but instead by seeing things in a proper, skillful way, that equanimity can arise. <clears throat> we can then extrapolate this then to look at how equanimity is specifically um, used in the context of the bojangas. In um, one sense, the factors of enlightenment can be said to be a linear progression of things. There's one sutta in the Bhojanga Sangyutta that gives this kind of um, uh, linear arising, as it were. The Buddha in that sutta says that when one reflects on and recollects and pays attention to the Dhamma, the mindfulness factor of enlightenment is established in him. One contemplates the Dhamma in a mindful fashion. When mindfulness is established, one investigates wholesome and unwholesome states with mindfulness. When they do that, they arouse energy. When energy is aroused, there arises joy, there arises rapture. With the arising of rapture, the mind becomes tranquil. When the mind is tranquil, it can become concentrated. And then equanimity is described in this context as 
one looks upon concentration with equanimity. And if we look at the formulations of the jhanas, we see, in fact, that equanimity is a prominent factor in the third and fourth jhanas themselves. I would specifically like to look at this in the context of the fourth jhana, because I think that's a very interesting thing to look at. In the fourth jhana, it's said that one has abandoned pleasure and pain. So in the earlier jhanas, there was piti sukha, joy and rapture. But these things, even though they're wholesome and pleasant, are seen to excite the mind. And so as one progresses through these jhanas, they abandon even piti and sukha because they see that these things can still have an exciting effect on the mind. And so in the fourth jhana, all that remains is neutral feelings. Pain and pleasure have been abandoned. And if you think about this idea of developing equanimity in response to pleasant and painful things, well, then you can kind of imagine how easy it would be to develop and maintain equanimity if there were only neutral things, if there weren't things that obsessed our minds, if there weren't things that we were averse to. Equanimity would come quite easily as a matter of course at that time. And then in the fourth jhana, it's described, there's described as being this perfect, pure mindfulness and equanimity. And hence, <clears throat> when one is in this, when one is experiencing this fourth jhana, this is a very strong platform upon which one can observe experience. And in fact, in many suttas that go into the gradual training that the Buddha set forth, such as the Maha Asapura Sutta or the Danta Bhumi Suttas of the Majjhima Nikaya, the progression goes that one goes to these four jhanas, and after that, one attains the three higher knowledges that Bhante Silananda went into, the most important being knowledges of the four noble truths, developed as a ba- based upon the fourth jhana where there's this purity of mindfulness and equanimity. There's this sharpness of wisdom, the wisdom that can cut through ignorance and delusion at that point because it's been so honed, because it's so concentrated in a pinpoint accuracy at that point in time. And so in the specific context of the Bojangas, this is the equanimity that we should strive towards in our practice, this perfect equanimity born of a concentrated mind born of a mind that has at least temporarily removed pleasure and pain and secluded itself from unwholesome states of mind so that there can be easy, comfortable abiding in order that we may turn our attention to the structural aspects of experience so that we can inevitably change those structural aspects of experience, specifically changing craving, getting that out of the equation as it were. But it can also, there can also be the description of the Bojangas in a non-linear sense. I think Bhante Silananda went into this too. There's another sutta in the Bojanga Sangita again, where the Buddha instructs, I think, it's, I think it's just all the monks, that when one has a sluggish mind, one should cultivate the enlightenment factors of investigation, energy, and rapture. When one has an excited mind, they should cultivate the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, equanimity. 
And so in that specific context, equanimity and all the other factors can refer to more mundane versions as well. The equanimity found in the fourth jhana is the ultimate goal and the perfection of this practice of equanimity. And yet at the same time, this framework can be used in more mundane and out of jhana aspects of equanimity as well. You see similar structural principles in the Noble Eightfold Path. For example, in one way, one can look at the Noble Eightfold Path linearly, i.e. that one perfects right view. Having perfected right view, they gain right intentions. With right intentions, they conduct themselves with right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Um, Having done that, they apply effort, mindfulness, so on and so forth. And at the same time, it wouldn't be correct to say that one has to wait until they have perfect intentions, perfect intentions of renunciation, non-harming, and non-cruelty, to start practicing right speech. That would be um, rather difficult. And so there's also this idea of the non-linear Noble Eightfold Path, a Noble Eightfold Path where different factors in different places feed upon one another, i.e. that one, con- one resolves to conduct themselves in right speech and right action. And this works backwards, as it were, to help us cultivate those same right intentions. So the same thing can happen in the Bojangas. There's these two complementary ways of looking at it. <clears throat> and so just briefly, since with the little bit of time that we have left, I'd like to go over this idea in a more mundane sense of applying equanimity in our practice. We've we've talked a lot about that, how to apply equanimity in the practice. So I think we've talked enough about that. But I also want to clarify that so long as we're subject to unwholesome states, then equanimity is not always the correct course. It's not always the best option. For example one wouldn't want to dwell equanimously as, let's say, anger filled their mind. They wouldn't just want to just sit around and let that happen. Instead, whenever a hindrance arises, we need to exert effort, exert energy, in order to remove that hindrance and prevent it from growing further and further until it manifests itself in action, in speech, and so on. If we just looked upon that anger arising, we could equanimously see, I'm getting angry, I'm getting very angry, I'm punching him in the face, (laughs) so on and so forth. And that's not what we want to do. In fact, one could say that equanimously being angry is not possible, that it's a paradox. And I I tend to believe that. I don't think I've ever been equanimously angry. It's either one or the other. (laughs) And the same thing with the other hindrances. And also, within the context of the Brahma-viharas, this idea of looking on beings equanimously is not always the best idea too. For example, I don't know, if one of you fell and broke your leg, it wouldn't be proper for me to say, I'm going to equanimously look upon you with your broken leg and I will contemplate the impermanence of this body in the full lotus position next to you as you writhe in pain. That's not what I want to do. When, when we have the opportunity, when we have the ability and the reasonable opportunity to do so, active compassion is a much more skillful response. The key is knowing when active compassion is the right thing to do and when equanimity is the right thing to do. And I wish I'd give you an answer to when to do that. It's very hard to see sometimes, but maybe you'll get some obvious instances like that and it'll be nice and easy for you.
There's also another sutta, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya, where <clears throat> the Venerable Sariputta is explaining some very lofty point of the Dhamma. I think it was regarding like formless attainments or something like that. I don't know really anything about that. But he was explaining that. And there was this other monk, the Venerable Udayi, who is a bit of the troublemaker of the suttas, as it were. He goes through all these kinds of different... Um, well, let's put it like this. A lot of the monk's rules are because of Udayi. He did all these really bad things, and the Buddha had to make rules to fix that. I don't even want to tell you a lot of them. They're really horrible. Anyway, so he's a known troublemaker, and he's contradicting Sariputta. And so, you know, Sariputta's trying to teach the Dhamma. He's a fully awakened arahant. And Udayi is interrupting with his own stupid opinion. That's wrong. And, you know, this is happening, and the Buddha is seeing this happening, and he basically reprimands the other monks. Monks... Why are you just looking at this elder bhikkhu being harassed like this? Out of compassion, you should, you know, stand up for this monk. You should, you know, intervene here and say, Udayi, you're not right here. Sorry, put, listen to Sariputta. Put away your own wrong views. And so these are just two examples of, you know, equanimity not being always the <clears throat> proper response to things. But nevertheless, there is this idea of that even if we're doing an active intervention in something, we want to, in a way of speaking, have an equanimous mind. For example, you know, if I'm trying to, I don't know, help someone, let's say I'm trying to give them a, a, some advice or a critique, if I'm doing that with an angry mind, it's not going to be effective. I have, if I want to offer advice or critique someone, it has to be with a mind of compassion, with a mind of you know, a very stable mind, a mind that's not being um, overcome by hindrances. So there is, there is nevertheless this idea of always remaining with wholesome states of mind, even when one is doing something more active than equanimous observation. <clears throat> and so having said all this and gone through the various um, definitions, roles of equanimity, I'd like to try and rewrap this retreat very briefly. In the Dhammapada, there's a verse that goes like this. Ye sang sambhodi angesu. Here you see the word bodhanga split into its parts, bodhi anga. That's just for poetic meter here. Ye sang sambhodi angesu samma chittang subhavitang Adana patinisagge anupadaya yerata kinasuva duti manto te loke parinibhuta. The English for that is those whose minds are well established in the factors of enlightenment, relinquishing attachments and delighting in non clinging, they, untainted and radiant, attain nibbana in this very world. So let us strive as diligently as possible to cultivate all the seven factors of enlightenment and all the 37 more general and broad overarching bodhipakya dhammas, 37 factors of enlightenment. And by doing so, we don't have to wait for another world or another life to attain what is to be attained. We can attain nibbana or one of the stages of nibbana 
in this very life. May we all do so. So go ahead and take a short break. Come back for practice. Um, If anyone has questions, I'll be answering those tonight at 7. So feel free to submit anything. Nice big clear letters in the box in the sangha hall.